You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Acts chapter 2 is going to be where we start at this morning. Um, but before we actually dive into Acts 2, I want to ask you a question. How would you complete this sentence? The Son of Man came to dot, dot, dot. Now, the Son of Man, just so you know, is a title given to Jesus in the Scriptures. And so, as you consider that, how would you answer this question on the screen? You fill in the blank. Would you say the Son of Man came to preach the Word? Would you say the Son of Man, Jesus, came to die on the cross? Would you conclude that sentence by saying the Son of Man came to usher in the kingdom? How would you complete this sentence? The reason I ask that is because in the New Testament, there are three different ways this phrase, the Son of Man, is completed. The first place we see it's in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where it says, The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The second place we see this is in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And we hear that, we're like, yes, of course, to both of those. But as you know, that the third and final phrase, the way it is completed in the New Testament, is in Luke 7, 34. It says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And apparently, according to this verse, he came eating and drinking a lot, at least enough to where the religious people of the day accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Needless to say, Jesus, the Son of Man, was serious about food, and therefore it should come as no surprise that when we look at his disciples, they were serious about food as well. So look with me in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is the very first church that we get a glimpse of. This is kind of the first missional community, so to speak. And we see that this first church, the disciples, they were devoted to many things. This is in verse 42. They were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what you're doing right now. It's whenever you come and you hear someone teach from the scriptures. So they were also devoted to fellowship. And look at this. And to the breaking of bread and prayers. And then all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking the bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What I want you to notice is that in this synopsis of the early church, The one practice that is repeated, if you look again, not just once, not twice, but three different times, is the practice of eating a meal together. In verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. In verse 46, it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread in homes. And again, in verse 46, it says they devoted themselves to receiving food with glad and generous hearts. Keep in mind, this is 1,500 years before the typewriter, before computers. And so if you wanted to make a point as a writer in the scriptures, you couldn't bold something, you couldn't italicize it, you couldn't underline it, but you actually had to repeat it. 
And to repeat it three different times in a short section like this is the writer's way of saying that though the church devoted themselves to many things, eating together in the home was by far one of the most important core practices of the early church. It was a normal and vital part of their discipleship to Jesus. We see this all through the early church. However, when you look down throughout church history, what you discover is that over time, this practice really began to fall to the wayside. And we see this happening really in, I would say, four stages that correspond with architecture in the church. And here's what I mean by that. First, whenever you look in the scriptures, you see, as we do here, that the early church primarily was gathered in a home around a table. The truth is, for hundreds of years, the church never built any sort of buildings. There were zero buildings that the church built at the first four or five hundred years of their existence. Everything that the early church did in the beginning was done primarily in the home, and the center of gravity was around the table. I think about my own dining room table in my house, uh, which Jordan Lane helped me build. Uh, yeah, there's a picture of it right there. It's got a red oak top on it that came from a tree that Jordan cut down, and that bench has kind of a cypress uh, a top on it that came from my late grandfather's shop, and those metal legs came from a friend of mine who made those for us. And as I sort of thinking about our own dining room table this week, I was sort of thinking about the reality that as a family, as the Pickney family, the object, more than any other object in our house, that pulls us in and reconnects us as a family is this table. And in the early church, what we see is the same was true. The table, more than anywhere else, became a regular gathering spot for those who followed Jesus. But then, once Christianity was legalized in the fourth century and began to spread to the edges of the empire, the church began to gather in these cross-shaped cathedrals, which I think I have a picture that we can show you maybe on the screen. Um, yeah, and so the, the cathedral right, began to be the, the, the primary place that the church would gather. And at this point, the meal devolved into a drink of wine and a bite of bread. And the focus moved from a table to an altar. And then in the 16th century, eventually it rolled around and out of the Protestant Reformation and the church's desire to know the Bible for themselves because uh, the printing press had not been invented yet. In order for them to know the Bible, they had to show up to something like this and hear someone read the scriptures or teach the scriptures. And at this point, architecture evolved into a colonial style of church. And this is basically a pretty familiar looking building to many of us. It's a rectangular shaped building that on the inside would have a preaching box that was raised up above others where you would show up and you would hear someone preach kind of like I'm doing right now. And at this point in church history, the focus moved from being at the altar to the pulpit. And then around the turn of the last century and kind of the fourth and the final movement, at least around the same time as the rise of the entertainment culture with the invention of the radio and then later the invention of the television, music began to play a huge role in church gatherings. Now, for the record, music has always been an important part of uh, faith, even before the days of Jesus. But more than ever, music began to be kind of a center point for the church whenever they began together. And so at this point, when you think about the church building, it really began to evolve into a theater style of architecture. Probably one of the best examples of this, as you see on the screen, is First Baptist Church building here in our city. Uh, some of you may not know this, but First Baptist was one of the very first churches to gather in our city. And at first, they actually gathered in an opera house that was here in Paragold, um, in a theater. And then they were able to build their own building. And when we look at this building, we look and we say, oh, that's a church building, right? You look at the stained glass, and it just kind of has the cross sign there. And you're like, okay, that's a church building. 
But if you get on the inside of it, what you see is on a functional level, it's a theater. It's got a stage, actually bigger than this one. It's got sloped seating so that you can, as you sit further back, you can see the person on the stage. It has a built-in organ and piano. I mean, literally, the whole acoustics in that room is designed to project music and preaching out to the audience. And so at this point, what we see in church history is the center of gravity shifted from the pulpit to a stage. And I would say to this day, this is the dominant style of how church is done. It's why whenever a new church, maybe a started or comes into town, they will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on music equipment. It's why whenever they market themselves and try to get the word out, everything will be about coming and gathering as many people as they can to see what happens on a stage. And I'm not here to make any moral judgments about that, to say whether that's right or that's wrong. But I do think it's pretty telling to think about where we are now compared to where we started. If you think about the church today, for many of us, we judge the strength of a church based off of what happens basically an hour a week right here on a stage like this. I mean, that's the normative way that we say whether a church is good or not good. It's the normative way that we decide whether we want to be a part of a church or we want to be a part of another church down the street. It's all about what happens on a stage. But if you look at the way the church started, this was not at all the way it came out of the box. It was actually a group of people gathered around a table, which I think has to say at least something about the core of what the church is to be about. As most of you know, the word Christian is used a meager three times in the New Testament. There are actually two other far more dominant words used to describe who we are as Christ followers. For example, the Greek word matheteus which is literally translated as disciple, is used 268 times in the scripture. Uh, another word used a lot is the Greek word uh, adelphos, which we translate as brother or sister, or if you have a KJV Bible, brethren, which I think is a phenomenal word that we should resurrect. Um, and it is used 350 times in the New Testament. And that actually goes all the way back to Jesus, who himself would refer to his followers as brothers or sisters. For example, in Mark chapter 3, verse 35, Jesus is teaching to a crowd, and his mother and his brothers are trying to get into the room. And someone says, Jesus, your family is outside, and they can't really get in because you know, there's so many people in the way. And Jesus looks at them, and in Mark three thirty-five, he says, actually, whoever does the will of God, that is my brother, that is my sister, that is my family. In other words, however you want to define the church, according to the scriptures, what we call the church is actually, by definition, disciples of Jesus living as family. And therefore, it should come as no surprise that the original architecture of the church was a home with brothers and sisters in Christ feasting around the table. And this feast, by the way, was not an afterthought for them. How many of you grew up Southern Baptist and remember the potlucks? Anybody remember those, right? Amen. That's right. The potluck was kind of an afterthought, right? It was, it was something we do after the main event. For the early church, the feast was not something they did before the main event. It was not something they did after the main event. It was the main event. That's why the Apostle Paul in Corinthians wrote so much about what to do. And he would say, Corinthians, when you come together to eat. He's talking about their Sunday gathering. He assumes when you come together that you will be eating. And this feast became so famous, it literally even developed its own identity. It got its own name. You know what they called the feast in the early church they gathered around? They called it the Agape Feast. Or in other words, they called it the Love Feast. I mean, how 1960s is that? Right? (laughs) And Tertullian, who was uh, an early Christian author and apologist back in 240 AD, he writes about these feasts, and here's what he says. 
He says, our feast explains itself by its name. The Greeks call it agape, which literally means love. Whatever it costs, our outlay in the name of piety is gained, since with the good things of the feast, we benefit the needy. As if God himself, a particular respect is shown to the lowly. The participants, before reclining, taste first of prayer to God. As much as eaten, as satisfied the cravings of hunger, as much is drunk as befits the chase. After each is asked to stand forth and sing as he can a hymn to God, either one from the Holy Scriptures or one of his own composing. As the feast commanded with prayer, so with prayer it is closed. I mean, don't you just love how simple church was? You show up, you pray, you eat a meal, you pray some more, and then everybody like sings a special. Like, I think we should do that again in our missional communities. I was thinking this past week, like, I'm like, okay, now Brian Wilkins is going to come forward. Brian, is this an original or is it Hillsong? Right? <laughs> like, this was the church, the love feast. And I just wonder as we think about, like, what does that say about our modern church today where our primary gathering is called a service where a pastor or musicians get on a stage and offer and provide goods and services to the religious consumer? And for the record, let me just say, I'm not against a Sunday gathering. I'm not against buildings. Obviously, we have one. We're going to even start a remodel uh, next week to do even more work in here to make it, I think, even more, uh, uh, I think it's going to make it an even better environment for us as we worship. I think the Sunday gathering is important. I'm not at all saying that we should ax it. But what I do want to make very clear is the central to discipleship to Jesus in the scriptures is feasting with other disciples of Jesus and doing life together as family. Now, this is a really simple idea, is it not? But unfortunately, it's an idea that we have tragically lost over the past decade with the rise of fast food industry that caters to our fast-paced, overly busy culture. Many of us, I think, have limited food to a product that fuels our individual pursuits rather than the sacred element that it is that is meant to strengthen the bonds that we have as a family in Christ. And Norman Witzba, or Wurzba, who is a professor at Duke University, he wrote a book called Food and Faith. I highly recommend it to every one of you if you want to go a whole lot deeper on the subject. But here's what he says around this idea of food being an element that actually strengthens our bonds as family. He says, eating joins people to each other and to God through forms of natural communion too complex to fathom. It introduces us to a grace world of hospitality, a creation that from the beginning and constantly through its soil absorbs death and makes room for newness of life. Eating involves us in a daily life and death drama in which beyond all comprehension, some life is sacrificed so that other life can thrive. How amazing is that? Hang on to that for later. It establishes a membership that confirms all creatures as profoundly in need of each other and upon God to provide life's nutrition and vitality. He goes on to say, eating demonstrates that we cannot live alone. That there is no human fellowship without a table, no table without a kitchen, no kitchen without a garden, no garden without the forces productive of life, and no life without its source in God. This is why Leonard Sweet says the following, an untabled faith is an unstable faith. I love that. He goes on to say, for a neglect of the table in our churches is echoed in our families and communities. And he's absolutely right. I'm not sure if you've read the statistics, but there was an article in The Atlantic published recently called The Importance of Eating Together. It's not written by a Christian, but they're talking in here about the direct correlation between how many times we eat together as a family and how our children are doing all sorts of things, like academic performance to obesity to everything in between. And here's what it says. Children of families that don't regularly eat together are 40% more likely to be obese, as well as at higher risk for teenage pregnancy, drug and alcohol abuse, depression, and anxiety. 
Whereas children that eat together with their families have lower rates in all of the above, along with higher graduation rates and better relationship with their parents. As a result, mental health paraprofessionals are now, listen to this, mental health paraprofessionals are now going as far as saying that the solution for well-being is simple. Eat together. And yet, despite what the scriptures say, despite what even now science is catching up with and saying, the Norman Rockwell picture of a family around a table has become incredibly out of date. Because of the rise of divorce, right? Because of all sorts of other reasons. I mean, many in our generation, right, have discovered that cooking is now a lost art, which is one of the reasons, by the way, if you haven't heard, we are uh, hosting a cooking workshop here this Wednesday and next Wednesday night. Uh, Michael Tolson, who is the chef and owner of Chow, has agreed to come here and teach us how to cook just some basic meals. But cooking has become a lost art. And even if you do know how to cook, chances are your family cannot afford to live on one income, so there is no partner who stays at home and preps a dinner. And therefore, as a result, I think typically for most of us, because we've got to get kids to sports and all these other kind of things, either we thin for ourselves altogether when it comes to dinner time, or at best we pick up fast food and we all kind of just chow down on it. I was reading some statistics this past week that says the average American family now spends the same amount on fast food as they do on groceries. The average American person eats one out of five meals in the car, literally like on the go. According to recent stats, only 17% of families regularly sit down over a meal. Of that 17%, half of them say they keep the TV on during the meal. This next statistic literally almost fell in my chair when I read it. 60 years ago, you know what the average meal time was? 60 years ago, the average meal time was an hour and a half long. An hour and a half long. In 2018, the average meal time is 12 minutes long. Needless to say... For many of us, we have reduced food to a mere commodity and ourselves as mere consumers. That's why, once again, Norma Wurzba for the win says this, what we fail to appreciate is that our consumer frenzy trains us to be the world's most ignorant, destructive, and superficial eaters. Insofar as consumers perceive food as commodity rather than with depth and significance, the miraculous gift of life is reduced to the ho-hum of the credit card swipe. (laughs) When it comes to eating, I think if we can be honest, for most of us, our primary concern is that it's convenient, cheap, plentiful, and requires little to no effort on our part. And I would say as a result, it's not just killing us physically, which we could talk about for quite some time, but it is, and I absolutely believe this, causing us to live spiritually and emotionally malnourished lives. And if that's where you are this morning, I mean, for some of you, maybe you hear this and you're like, I'm glad you're finally preaching on something I'm not convicted by. Like, we actually do this really well in our family. For others, you may be feeling some conviction. Wherever you are, I just want to say this, I'm really glad you're here. I want to say this often from here. A fellowship is a place where you can belong before you believe. You don't have to have your whole life together. And so if this is an area that you're really struggling, right, like, again, like you're in the probably the norm. And I just want to, to let you know, like, we, we really are so glad that you're here. That verse that I read earlier... This is Jesus came eating and drinking, says at the end of that verse that he was a friend to sinners and tax collectors. That's the posture we want to have at Fellowship Bible Church. Because I'm a sinner. And so I want you to be a friend to me. I want to be a friend to you. We want to be open. We want to be people that, that, that you can come here and you know that you can be loved as you are and not as who you think you should be. And listen, that's one of the beautiful things about our church. But you want to know something? It's also one of the problems with our church. 
Because when you come as you are, guess what that means? You come as you are. And so you come with your loneliness, you come with your religious hang-ups, you come with your brokenness, you come with your baggage, you come with your depression and your anxiety and your father wounds and your workaholism and your addictions and your lust and your greed. And listen, and every single person, the reason you're here right now is you're looking for healing. And what you need to know is that if you're looking for healing, more than we need to be a part of an audience that gathers around a stage, we need to be a part of the family of God that gathers around the table. That's what we need for healing. And that is why Jesus, whenever you you look at him, right, before he goes to the cross, he he says, look, I want you to remember what I'm about to do for you. I want you to remember that I came and lived a perfect, sinless life that you could never live. And that I'm about to go to the cross. And at the cross, I'm literally about to die the death you deserve to die. I'm going to take on the wrath of God on your behalf. So rather than getting the death and the penalty that you deserve, you can get life. You can get forgiveness. You can get for freedom that is found in me. You can be welcomed into the family of God. And Jesus says, the way that I want you to remember this. It's not through wearing a cross necklace. It's not through like repeating these words ever so often. But literally, Jesus says, the way I want you to remember what I have done for you is through a meal. It's through bread and it's through wine. Jesus says, I want you to remember that just as something had to die so that you could be physically sustained, I had to go and die so that you could be spiritually and emotionally sustained. So I want you to remember this truth. I want you to remember that through my death, because I was cast out of the family. Remember on the cross, Jesus cried out to God, my God. I mean, everywhere in Scripture, Jesus refers to God as Father. Everywhere but on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus was kicked away from the table. He was forsaken by his own Father so that you could have a seat. And you could feast for all eternity with the creator of the universe. This is why Jesus is so serious about food. It's why whenever you read the Gospel of Luke, Jesus literally is either eating a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. Where he's just hanging out with his disciples and inviting the last, least, and lost of society to eat with him. And a lot of this, guys, though I know for many of us, we look at food as just something we have to fill our bodies with so we can keep going. In a lot of this reality, we see food truly is sacred. And therefore, if we want to be a disciple of Jesus, and again, we define disciples. What is a disciple? And we need to say this often, a disciple is someone who wants to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. And therefore, if we want to be healthy disciples, we too must treat food the way Jesus treated food. And so this week, the practice for us is really straightforward. And if you're new here and you're like, what are you talking about the practice? Let me say this real quick. As a church, we really believe that to follow Jesus is really just to kind of practice the way of Jesus together here in Paragould and Jonesboro and beyond. What we do is three to four times a year, I'll say this, we don't need just a whole lot more information. Most of you have a ton of information right here. Most of you know a lot of this stuff. The problem is not that we don't have information. The problem is we don't apply the information. That's why we don't change. That's why we don't experience more of Christ in our lives. And so what we do is three to four times a year, we pick a teaching and a practice from Jesus, and we say we're just going to practice it together so that we can become more like Christ, which is the goal of a disciple. And so this week, in light of that, the the practice is pretty simple. It's to share a meal with a brother or sister in Christ. Now, if you're in a missional community, that's going to be really easy for you because your missional community eats a meal literally every single week. And so if you're in an MC, here's what I want to encourage you to do, okay? Please listen. Prioritize the meal. Stop viewing it as optional. Some of you, you were planning your whole week, and then if you have any time left over, you say, okay, then we'll show up at the meal. 
This is incredibly important in your discipleship to Christ. Make the Sunday meal or Wednesday night meal, whenever you meet, make that a priority in your discipleship to Christ. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. Whenever your meal sign-up comes out, I don't know how y'all do it, but for us, Catherine Ritchie sends out a meal sign-up, and we can sign up for whatever, the, whether it's Italian cooking or home cook or breakfast foods, whatever. Get on there and sign up for something. Make it a priority, and then actually do some work to prepare something, even if it's just boxes, a box of brownies or whatever it may be. And then show up. Don't shoot like the, the, you know, the kind of sneaky text 15 minutes before, right, with like no warning, you know, like, hey, we can't be, make it or whatever. Like, commit to it. Show up with food and then eat and just be present with people. Pay attention to who's in front of you and what you're experiencing in that moment. And some of you, I know, like you're killing it in this series. Some of you are like, I've been doing that for four, five, six years now. It's not hard for me. Then here's what I want to encourage you to do. Make sure, one, that you're opening your home up to others. Adam's going to talk about that in two weeks, about the importance of hospitality and how that models the gospel. And so if you're already going to the meal in somebody else's house, like maybe like take a step forward and say, we're going to now open the doors to our house and invite somebody to come have a meal here. And if even that's easy for you, here's what I would encourage you to do then. Seek to have a meal with someone outside of your faith, outside of this religion, outside of this belief, someone who doesn't look like you or act like you or maybe in the same stage of life as you. Again, Jesus was a friend of sinners and tax collectors, so those outside the family of God. That's the practice for this week. Now, that being said, we're about to end. But to circle back around before we end, I want to talk about architecture again for just one moment. Because in Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, he talks about the decline of community in America. For example, like everybody used to be in a bowling league or go to the Elk Lodge or whatever else. Like that's dying out in America. Community literally is in decline. And what he makes the point of in his book is that the architecture of our homes actually aid in the decline of that community. So for example, think about this. If a home was built 50 or 60 years ago, it was important that you had a front porch. And the living room is typically in the front of the house with the window facing the front. But now, the majority of houses that I've seen built aren't focused on a front porch, but a back patio or a back deck. And the living room is in the back of the house, and the window is facing towards the backyard. And the whole point that Putnam's making here is like, you know, now, if you go walk in the neighborhood, for example, like, you don't even know if people are home or not. Right? I mean, now we also have these garages, and so people pull up and they shut the garage immediately. They got privacy fences. So you're walking with your family, and you might see like a light on in the back of the house, and you're like, are they home? Are they just trying to keep a burglar away? Like, you don't even know anymore. Right? And the whole reason I bring that up is just to say this if you choose to live in the way of Jesus in this area of feasting around a table with others, you need to know this, guys. Listen to me. All of society, including architecture itself, is against you on this. It's working against you on this. So this is not going to be easy, but I absolutely believe with all of my heart this is the way forward as a church. It's why Jean Venier says the following, and I love this quote. If you're having a hard time in your missional community and need some motivation, take a picture of this screen, whatever, save it, read it often. Jean Venier says the following, In years to come, we're going to need many small communities which will welcome the lost and lonely people, offering them a new form of family and a sense of belonging. In the past, Christians who wanted to follow Jesus opened hospitals and schools. They did these big projects, right? And we thank God for that. But now, he says, there are so many of these, Christians must commit themselves to the new communities of welcome, to live with people who have no other family, and to show them that they are loved and can grow to greater freedom, and that they, in turn, can love and give life to others. How good is that? You know, last week, as many of you know, I wasn't able to be here. I thought I was dying of leprosy. Um, 
I mean, I was an outcast from my family. I couldn't be around of them because just some stuff, you know, it was contagious. And they go off to, to here, and I heard Chuck did a phenomenal job. Thank, so thankful for him to fill in. But they come here, and I'm sitting on my back patio, and, and, and Green County Tech High School is in my backyard. And so I'm watching 1,200 people, you know, file in to, to Central's new um, service, you know, the, the campus they launch. And I'm sitting there, and I'm watching that. And, I mean, I just, I just honestly, I felt so lonely in that moment. I mean, I'm sitting there. I can't be around my family. I couldn't be here with you guys. And I'm sitting there. I feel lonely. I feel sick. I feel like an outcast. And in that moment, here's what Jesus said to me. It's so sweet into the Spirit. I'm throwing myself a pity party. The Spirit says to me, hey, Jared, you know what you're feeling right now? You're feeling what thousands of people are feeling right now who are sitting at home that will never go to an event like that on a Sunday morning. And you remember, son, what I called you to do when you planted this church. That I called you not to build some sort of stage where you gather an audience on Sunday mornings where people go, I like you guys better than those guys, so we'll stick around. I'm more entertained here than I'm entertained there, so we'll keep showing up. He says, you don't give yourself to that. He says, you give yourself to go into where people are, where the last, the least, and the lost society are. And you go there with the gospel of Jesus Christ and with the love of Christ in your heart, and you do it so people who are far from God can be brought around the table and join the family of God. That's why we exist. It's to go to where the people are, as John Veneer says, the people who are the lost and lonely, who are dying to be a part of a family where they can experience the unconditional love of Jesus Christ poured out through you and me. That's why we're here. And I believe with all of my heart, if this is going to happen, if this is going to move from just being a pep talk this morning to reality, it's going to have to happen through missional communities. And so my encouragement to you is this, as I begin to close, is if you're not in a missional community, please get connected in a missional community. We're trying to make it as easy as we can. Guys, I know it, it should feel hard. It should feel awkward. It should feel difficult. It should. There's nothing wrong with you that it feels that way. Again, all society is telling you, do not get in community. Show up on Sunday morning and call it a week. But I want to encourage you, get into an MC. Meet with this Next Steps MC out here. That train is so loud, isn't it? Um, get into a, get in, get a Connect with Next Steps. They will literally... Maybe not literally, but metaphorically, they, they, will, they will hold your hand and help you find the right MC for you. They might literally do it as well if you ask them to. I don't know. This Sunday gathering, it is very important. If it's not, we wouldn't pay money for a building. I wouldn't spend 15 hours a week working on a sermon. The band wouldn't get up here and practice. It is very important for your discipleship. But I'm telling you, listen, this is not enough for you. It is just not enough for you. And you are going to be tempted. You are going to absolutely be tempted. I'm telling you guys, and you're, you're going to feel this, you're going to be tempted to settle for a church that offers you the best experience from a stage once a week. And if you do that, you're going to settle for a life less than what God created you to experience. So if you're not an MC, let me encourage you to get into an MC. To the 99% of you that are in an MC, we actually have more in MCs than we have show up on Sunday mornings. Is that right? A lot of you are in MCs, and we thank God for that. And here's my encouragement to you. If you're in a missional community, don't grow weary in doing good. If you will stay the course, you will absolutely reap a harvest. It's right here in the Scriptures. 
I've been in a missional community for six years now, and here's two things that I've noticed. Being in a missional community is really, really good, and it's really, really hard. Can I get an amen from somebody in here? Thank you for being honest, Randy. The rest of you are lying. <laughs> so it is so hard to live in a community where you're actually known and you know the brokenness and sins of others and you just rub up against each other. Um, people show up late. They don't show up at all. They send a text message right before. It's just like, hey, we ain't going to be there. No warning, no excuse. Uh, people will go back for seconds before you even get your first plate. People will let their kids put their hands in the chips bags that you when you want a chips. <laughs> You'll find out this person's drinking too much. You'll find out this person's been gossiping about that person and there's bitterness. Uh, people will talk about stuff you don't even care about. Um, they'll, they'll, they'll cut you off. You'll get sick and they won't even ask you how you're doing. Right? I, I mean, like, that's just life, isn't it? It's not easy when you live in community. But I truly believe that it is here that Jesus wants to do the best work in us and through us in our city. As we keep coming back around the table and we taste and see that God really is as good as he says he is. And so with that in mind, what I want to encourage you to do is this week, come around the table. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is not by our design, it's Jesus' design. He said you need this. So every single week, we have communion. We have two sessions in the front, we have two in the back, a gluten-free option for those that need that. And just as you come forward, just be reminded, I know this is a small table, but just as you come and you take this bread, just be reminded, man, literally like one time I was an orphan. We just sang about it. Scriptures talk about I was an orphan, but I've been adopted into the family of God, and I will get to feast forever. If you're here today, though, and you have not trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, look, rather than receiving this bread and juice, receive Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, listen, by taking of this communion, God's not going to love you more. He's not going to forgive you of some sort of sins. He's not going to answer some sort of prayer. This is delicious bread. It's homemade bread, but it's just bread to you, and it's just probably... Great value grape juice. I'm not sure where we get it from. But it, it, to us, though, it's a symbol of hope. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you're not a Christian, man, you need to become a Christian today. You really do. You really do. And, and so, you know, my encouragement to you is, is just this today is, man, stop looking for fulfillment and satisfaction in the things of the world Right, some of you are literally thinking about this, this food metaphor. It's like you're looking for fulfillment in, in cotton candy, right? Which like tastes good for a while, but you eat too much of it, it just makes you sick. And that's what some of us are doing, spiritually speaking. And Christ is right here before you. Kind of the image that just comes to my mind is, so think about the story of the prodigal son. I mean, some of you right now, you think you've got to clean yourself up before you can really come into the family of God. And that is a lie from the pit of hell, man. I think of the prodigal son, where the prodigal son, he says to his father, you know what, I don't want to be in a relationship with you anymore. I just want your stuff, but I don't want you. And the father says, okay, I'll let you go. But then he goes off, and after you know, living life his way, he realizes it's better to be back with his father. So he goes back home. What is the father doing? The father doesn't shame him for what he's done. He doesn't say, you, you idiot, I told you you shouldn't have done that. Literally, the, the father runs to him, embrace. It's an embarrassing scene for a Middle Eastern man. He, he embraces him, he kisses him, and then you know what he does? He invites him into a feast. And he gives him the best seat. And he says, for you were lost, but now you are found. 
that's the Father's posture towards each of you today. I don't care who you are or what you've done. And so today, if you're not a Christian, I'm going to encourage you to cross that line, to go all in for Christ. And if you want to know more information about how to do that, I'll be standing right here. You can come and you can talk to me. I'd be more than happy to help you understand what your next steps might be in that way. So I'm going to ask you a lot of all that to stand with me as the band comes forward. I want to pray for us, and uh, then we'll partake of communion. We'll sing another song, and then we'll be dismissed. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much that you are a good God who gives us things like food, and you even give us taste buds to enjoy it. That's your design. It's not our design. We didn't come up with that. And it just shows us how good you are. And we are living in a world right now that is trying to tell us that there is something that is better than you. And I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, only you can do this, God. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to be gracious to each person here. I pray that you will, through the power of your Spirit, open the eyes of the blind, that you will help our hearts to see you and feel you as you really are, to taste and see that you are good. I pray that we'll do that all over again as we come around this table. And for those who maybe have not decided to follow you, that today will be the day that that changes. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.